Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. If you're a visitor, just want to say personally, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter what circumstances led to you being here, this is a good and safe place for you to be, and we're delighted you've joined us as we cont continue uh, to worship Christ and particularly study through 1 Peter. We come to 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25, but particularly to verse 22, to a text of Scripture that's been living rent-free in my heart and my mind for some 20 years now. I remember uh, it was probably my junior, senior year of college, I was in a discipleship group with a group of guys, and we studied through the book of First Peter. And I remember coming to this text, particularly verse 22, and reading, now that you've purified yourselves from obedience to truth and have sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly or deeply, as NIV read uh, back then, love, love deeply or earnestly from a pure heart. And I remember my youthful zeal reading that and thinking, man, I want to love like that. And so I began to pray, Lord, help me love. I don't want to just love like a little bit. I want to love a lot of bit. I don't want to just love like at surface level with sincere love. I want to love deeply from the heart. I want to be gripped. When people weep, I want to weep. Like whatever, if they're sad about something, I want to be extra sad with them. If they're excited and celebrating, I want to be celebrating for them more than even they're celebrating for themselves. I want to love deeply from the heart. Now, I say youthful zeal because I remember praying and asking the Lord, Lord, help me love deeply from the heart. Help me love like this. Now, what I didn't realize was what ended up happening some weeks later, maybe months later. I was laying in my bed in this kind of little ghetto jail cell of a dorm room in a high rise at UNC Charlotte. Cinder block walls in my loft bed praying and suddenly having sleepless nights thinking, why can't I sleep? Why do I feel so burdened for so many people? Why is it that my heart feels broken over and over and over again for so many people such that my mind is spinning and, and I can't sleep at night? Why do I feel so much pain? And then I think the Holy Spirit helped me connect some theological and experiential dots. What's the greatest expression of love humanity has ever seen? Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save sinners. What's also the greatest expression of suffering that humanity has ever seen? Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save sinners. Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save sinners. See, there's a deep connection between deeply loving and deep suffering. To understand, no, no, to demonstrate and show and reveal love is to say, I'm going to enter into pain and suffering with others and feel their pain and suffering such that sometimes it even leads to sleepless nights. To love someone is to care for them, to want the best for them, to serve them, to give to them, to pray for them, to make sacrifices to them, to, to, or for them, to encourage them, to share their burdens, to carry and lighten the load in their life. To weep with those who weep, to celebrate with those who celebrate, to tell them the truth when it's not what they want to hear, but what they need more than anything else in the world. This is to love sincerely or earnestly or deeply or consistently from the heart. And that's what the Apostle Peter takes our attention to this morning in this letter to Christians scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He's expounded on the glories of the saving work of God in Christ. And he's begun explaining how that finished and saving work is to impact and change and transform our lives. And we've seen him tell us we're to set our hope on future grace. 
We're to be holy as God is holy. We're to fear the Lord and live in this fear of the Lord. And now he turns to our relationships with one another in the family of faith. We're to have sincere and deep affection for our brothers and sisters in this new covenant community of faith. This is one of the most clear and obvious goals of your conversion in the scriptures. Namely, love for the people of God, the church. If you're among those whose hope is in future grace and among those who are pursuing holiness as God is holy, among those who fear the Lord, then you are among those called to love the people of God earnestly from a pure heart. Karen Jobes in her commentary says, one's covenant relationship with God is never an individual matter. To be chosen by God and set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in the covenant in Christ means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also chosen. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. So the command is clear. We're to love our brothers and sisters earnestly from a pure heart. Peter grounds it in two uh, participle phrases. You've been set apart by your obedience to the truth that was preached to you. Therefore, love earnestly. And you've been born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word. Therefore, love earnestly. So let's look at these two grounds and then make some very practical applications to close our time together. But first, let us pray one more time and ask for God's help. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. Confessing you have indeed ransomed us with the very blood of your beloved son. And in so doing, you brought us into your family, even as the bride of your resurrected son. Help us to know your love, to show your love to one another, so that the world might indeed see that we are disciples of King Jesus and that people would be drawn even unto him through our love for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, two grounds and then some applications. First, ground number one, he set us apart to love one another earnestly. He set us apart to love one another earnestly. Look again at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter first grounds this command in our, in our, to our conversion uh, of, uh, to Christ and the truth of the gospel. That's what he means by this, uh, your obedience to the truth. He's reminding us that we've purified our souls, that is in our, in our inner being, our, in our hearts, in our minds, our conscience. We've been purified by our obedience to the truth. Now, obedience to the truth, this phrase, he means your conversion. He's referring back to your conversion and faith in the gospel. You see this in the, in the flow of the text. Again, so, so do this by your obedience to the truth in verse 22. Look down at verse 23. Because you've been born again, into verse 23, through the living and enduring word, and look at the end of verse 25. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So you obeyed this truth when you heard the gospel word preached. You repented of your sin and you trusted in Christ. You were baptized into the church or you need to be baptized and join the church, but you came into this new covenant community and that baptism was the jersey ceremony where you received the redeemed team jersey. That you now have the blood of Christ and that's your baptism signifying that he's purchased you. He's brought you into this new faith family. And this is what Peter's talking about when he says you were purified or sanctified as he says back in verse 2. This is purified, this purification language of the Old Testament that highlights being set apart and now into the new covenant community of faith. That's what it means to obey the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul used this language to refer to, uh, to conversion. He called it the obedience of faith. This was a common way for Paul to talk about a conversion. So to become a Christian, we unashamedly call people to repent of their sin, trust in Christ alone, be baptized, and enter into this church. Being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we respond to that reality, and this is what obedience and response to that truth and finished work looks like. This is consistent with what Christ taught us in the Great Commission. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And how the apostle Peter himself in the early church preached the gospel of grace. When some brothers respond, verse Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, this obedience obviously doesn't mean that believers contribute to our salvation. That would undermine everything Peter's taught us in the first 12 verses of this epistle. That's not what it, like when he talks about the obedience of faith or the obedience through you've been purified. He's not saying you contribute to your salvation. He said, no, no, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, everything we talked about in the first 12 verses, you respond to that. That's the obedience of faith. To obey the gospel is not to erase or add to salvation by grace alone. No, it's just a description of true faith. True faith rests in the finished work of Christ and results in obedience to Christ. True faith rests in his finished work and that results in obedience to Christ. This is what Peter is connecting us to. This is consistent with the Apostle James. Right? James says faith without works is dead in James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. But James would say that's entirely consistent with God doing 100% of the saving work. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So again, Peter is saying, since you've obeyed the truth of the gospel, since you've been converted to Christ and have been purified or sanctified or set apart, cleansed as one of his new covenant people, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's reminding us as he's done, the conversion that happened in your past has present implications here and now. He cleansed you so that you might have sincere and genuine love for your brothers and sisters in the faith. You're to be different now. You're to love differently the people of God than you did when you were not a believer. Because you've been set apart, because you've been brought into this family, because you've been sanctified or purified by the Spirit, verse 2, you're now into this family, and that now is to transform these familial relationships. So love sincerely. Now notice this word, sincerely. In the Greek, literally the word just means unhypocritically. So you're to love unhypocritically. This love is to be genuine, not two-faced, if you will. We're not to gather and sing songs and listen to sermons and pray and greet one another with fake smiles and then pretend like you don't know these people or act ashamed of these people or worse, gossip about them during the rest of the week. That's a hypocritical love. That's not the sincere love you've been saved for. No, no, he brought you into this family to have a sincere love deeply from the heart to say, no, I love you. Even like the crazy uncles in the family, I know and love you too. No, no, we understand. No, no, we, we do greet. We do smile. We do get a cup of coffee. We do have conversations. And we have, like, but listen, when we go outside of this gathering, we're still family. We're not ashamed to be called family. We might be ashamed of certain things our family members do, but we're not ashamed of our family. We don't pretend to love. We actually love deeply from the heart. Do you have this kind of heart for Christ's blood-bought people? Do you have this kind of affection for the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in the faith? It's interesting. What are these brothers and sisters in, in uh, Asia Minor, in this region, who are suffering persecution? What is it that Peter thinks they need to remember first about their relationships with one another and even about their theology? He talked about faith and hope last week, and now he's talking about love. Faith, hope, and love. Basic Christianity. 
He says, listen, I know you're going to be going through, and I know in the midst of going through, you may be tempted to forget that you're reconciled to the Father, through the Son, and by the work of the Spirit, but also that you've been brought into this family. And so you need to be reminded of faithful biblical Christianity is we love God and we love people. We've been brought into this church, into this family, and we're to love and serve this family. What do we be, need to be reminded of? To be holy, to fear God, and to love one another earnestly. Schreiner makes this connection saying we should note that in verse 21 and 22, Peter spoke of faith, hope, and now love. He did not summon a suffering church to anything other than the mainstream Christian life. To love for one another and the flames of such love should not be extinguished by the winds of persecution. So when we're going through and when culture starts to push back and push us to the margins, we need to be reminded we must love one another. We need one another. We must lean on and help one another. Why should we love earnestly? Because we've been purified through our obedience to the truth of the gospel. Secondly, why should we love earnestly? Because he gave us new birth to love one another earnestly. <laughs> he gave us new birth. So again, we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart because we've been reborn for this. And this new birth has given us eternal life together with our brothers and sisters. So again, read verse 22 with this in mind. Having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You're now in this family. This new birth brings with it a, a heart and a desire to love brothers and sisters in the family. Notice this command is not merely sincere love, but sincere brotherly love. So it's not just, so we'll talk about what does it look like to love the world. We'll talk about what does it look like to be faithful to those who are outside the faith family. But he's talking about sincere brotherly love. Literally, the Greek word here is Philadelphia, where the word Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. So this is particular kind of love that he's saying, no, no, we'll talk about love for other people, but this kind of love that we're talking about is for the faith family. Those who've been saved and washed by the same blood and brought to the same family receive this new heart, and this new heart beats with new affection for the new people of God. Verse 23 through 25 explain why this brotherly love. Again, because we've been born again, we have the, through the same seed, the living and abiding word of God. And so that's Peter's argument. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So again, notice Peter's argument. Now, Peter's, again, the original language, the Greek is, is a mess, and there's all kinds of debates and arguments about how to unpack this, but I just, want, I just want you to point out the obvious things. We have the same Father who's birthed us through his seed. Now, therefore, we have brothers and sisters in this faith family. That's why we must have this sincere love. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're going to be going through spiritual warfare. There's going to be people pressing back and pushing against Christians. So Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 9, speaking of the devil, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the second reason Peter gives for this familial love is the fact that God's word has birthed us with eternal living and gospel hope. The seed is imperishable. Now, we're only 25 verses into our study in 1 Peter, but it is evident that he wants Christians who are outsiders in their culture to understand that which is eternal and that which is temporal. Perishable, that's one of his favorite words. He keeps using this illustration. Look back and let your eyes scan up in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 4. 
our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He wants you to remember you've got an inheritance that does not go away. Things on earth are perishable, not your inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 18, we talked about being redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, not perishable things like silver and gold. Now, verse 23, we are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. Over in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Peter will exhort females to have the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So this seed, this imperishable seed, he wants to, and no, he's, you gotta, if you're going to make it in this world, if you're going to make it in the Christian life, you've got to understand the difference between that which is eternal and imperishable, that which is going to perish and is temporal just now. You've got to have an eternal perspective as you think about this, even as you think about loving and serving deeply from the heart, this faith family. God is our Father, and He's given us eternal life. Our earthly fathers, through their seed, we have an earthly life, but that life has an expiration date. Our new birth in Christ is eternal. We will never die. This means our new birth was the imperishable word of God that was preached to us and led to us being purified and born again. It's now given us eternal life. So the word is imperishable. Our souls are imperishable if we've received this word. This is good news. This word that caused our new birth is imperishable. That means it's invincible. It is a living and abiding word. That's why 1 Peter 1.22 has been living rent-free in my heart and mind for 20 years. Because this word is living and active. It gets inside of you and, and transforms your very being, your very heart, and how you interpret and view people even in the faith family. This seed is life-giving. It's life-preserving. This gospel word has come to you by the power of the Spirit and given you eternal life, and it's going to keep you into eternal life. You're born into this family through the seed of the Father. Therefore, you will never die. Now, then what Peter does is interesting because he goes to Isaiah chapter 40 to ground and support his argument. So it just, it's helpful for us to understand the context of Isaiah 40 to understand then why he's going to go to this imperishable word of God and this illustration with grass and flowers in the word. Isaiah 40, the context was Israel needed comfort. She was in exile under Babylon. God's people were very discouraged. And Isaiah 40 opens up in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Like receive comfort from this word of the Lord. It's going to give hope. Isaiah 40 gives hope and promises deliverance. So there were, those were certainly curious. Is God going to show up? Is he going to get us out of this bad situation that we're in? Will he come through? They were asking, as it were, will, God keep his, will Yahweh keep his promises to Abraham and Isaac? Has he forgotten about us because we're in exile, we're in suffering, we're under Babylon? Like, there these kinds of questions, when you're going through, you can be tempted to wonder, will God still keep his word? Will he be faithful? Will he show up? But comfort, comfort comes to them in Isaiah 40 verse 1. Verse 5 says his glory is going to be revealed all over the world. Verse 9 says uh, he's going to bring justice and redemption through his shepherding care in verse 10 and 11. But right in the middle of all of this in Isaiah 40, verse 6 and 8, we read, All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So why is Peter using this? Babylon felt like an undefeatable superpower to Israel in her day. When he writes to these Christians in the diaspora, Rome felt like an undefeatable superpower to Christians in Peter's day. We might feel like the increasing progressive secularism that threatens to continue to push Christians into the margin is an undefeatable superpower in our day. God's presence might and promises might feel far away. But brothers and sisters, worldly superpowers come and go. They all have birth dates, dashes, and expiration dates. As I've quoted KB to you before, empires expire. 
They come, they go. They begin, they end. Their power, their rule, their authority is but for a time. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Eventually, every earthly king will bow the knee to the king of kings. Peter's telling the new covenant exiles to remember the old covenant exiles and be encouraged by the same thing they were encouraged by, the imperishable word of God. For those who've been born again by this imperishable seed of the gospel word, exile in this broken world will eventually come to an end, but we will never come to an end. We are born of his eternal word, therefore we have eternal life. The current persecutors in this broken world like grass and flowers that wither and die after their season is over eventually will wither and die but the word doesn't have a season it never ends and we are born of this word this gospel word we are forever therefore let us show sincere brotherly love to one another as those who will endure and love one another forever say like, listen you're going to be together forever with these crazy uncles <laughs> you might as well learn to love them now like this is, he's, he's connecting. No, no, no. You know what's eternal? The souls of man and the word of God. And through this gospel preached to you, your soul has been transformed and washed clean. You've been born anew, so you're now going to have eternal life. This word is going to be forever. So therefore, love one another. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You've been made new with the blood of Christ. You've been brought into this family of Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. So we're going to spend the rest of our time practically asking the question, what does this look like to love like this? Like this kind of love, because we've been set apart and made holy, purified, sanctified, our obedience to the truth, that's, ha- that's one of our reasons. The second reason is we've been birthed anew, we've been given a new heart. Both of those are supposed to make us lead and love and serve and uh, to, to have a deep love for one another in our heart from this pure heart that we've now received by grace through faith in Christ. What does it look like? Your purified heart, set apart and given new birth, wants to please Christ. And just as I said to you weeks ago, that's not a question. If you have a new heart, that heart wants to please Christ. And Christ has been very clear with us what it looks like. We must love one another. So the question for me is, before we can get into what does this look like for us practically to love deeply from the heart, we've got to talk about the contextual challenges we have right now to do that. So again, for for Peter's group, they're spread out. They're under Rome. Persecution is coming. It's, It's beginning kind of individually, ends up coming politically later. For, for Israel in exile in Babylon, they were underneath Babylon's persecution. For us, what are the contextual challenges that would tempt us to not love deeply, but instead rebel and need to be reminded of this command? The great contextual challenge for us to live out this today is that we find ourselves in a world that's never been more confused about what love actually is. Modern culture has so much confusion, idolatry, and even ironic difficulty with this word love. I've observed and publicly stated for more than a decade that our culture has redefined love as unconditional affirmation detached from objective truth. Unconditional affirmation detached from objective truth. Let me illustrate with a little bit of a silly illustration what I mean. Modern culture and me are having a conversation. Modern culture says, if you love me, then you will affirm me in my desires and choices no matter what. My question is, well, what if that hurts someone else? 
Modern culture will respond, well, of course I meant you affirm me in my desires and choices so long as they don't hurt anyone else. Bet. Who determines if it hurts someone else? Well, that person, of course. So if your feelings change and breaking up with someone that you're dating hurts them, does that mean you can't break up with them because that hurt them? Stop being silly. Of course you can break up with someone. (laughs) So some hurt then is okay. Modern culture, I feel triggered and this isn't a safe space. Conversation is over. Now again, I'm being a bit playful with the end of that, but I'm just trying to point out no one actually believes that though we function like it's true. We understand if someone is going to walk out in front of a bus and they say, man, I just feel like this will make me happy. Love doesn't say, go for it. No, love at some point will tackle them to keep them from getting hit by a bus. Right? So love is not unconditional affirmation detached from objective truth. It has to be a right kind of affirmation connected to objective truth, informed by and submitted to objective truth. But what this does then is confuse us. And now in our modern culture, the creed or confession of faith is love is love. But fundamentally, what ends up mattering most, if that's your confession, is whatever individual's subjective feelings feels like love is. So functionally, love is love means love is God, or more accurately, my love is my God. And the problem is that love then is defined by shifting feelings. Therefore, it only logically makes sense for the LGBT uh, community, LGBTQ plus community, to add the A, which is affirming, and the plus, because this alphabet must keep growing. Because the feelings in the hearts of man will always keep changing and loving something else. So it has to be infinite. It has to continue. But the problem is when you do this, then what you're doing is saying, no, my love is my God. Your love is your God. Your love is your God. But at some point, there's going to be a collision of gods and they're going to eat themselves. At some point, these gods are going to disagree with one another. And this is the very problem with detaching love from objective truth. It eventually will destroy itself. So this is not a harsh judgment or an anger or a this. No, no, it's this pointing out. No, this is what this is going to lead to is brokenness and pain and chaos and destruction unless we're restored to understanding there's got to be objective truth of right and wrong, good and bad, of what love is and what love is not. If love is reduced to feelings and feelings are forever changing, then instability, chaos, confusion, and conflict is certain to increase. That's why we're warned with the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man But its end is the way to death. Okay, this is the context with which we now have to talk about loving one another earnestly. Now, I'm tempted to preach a whole different sermon now, talk about cultural engagement, how do we do this? That's not the point of this sermon. My point in bringing all that up is to help you understand and see, wait a minute, this is the contextual moment you're in and I'm in. And certainly our definition and understanding of love has been influenced by this more than we realize. We all have love for things we ought not have love for. We all have love that's shifting and, and, and back and forth and leads to insubstantial. We all have loves that sometimes are for the right thing, but there's too much of it. It's inordinate in its desire. So all of us need help from God and objective truth to make our love submit to the truth of God's love so that we then understand and have them rightly so that it glorifies him, it blesses us, and blesses the world. That's our context. That's what I want to point out. Therefore, to love one another earnestly means we should anticipate that will not always be easy or intuitive. Because we've grown up in a world that's very confused about what love is. So we shouldn't trust our instincts on what is loving naturally until we go to the text and submit to the scriptures. But brothers and sisters, 
the good news then in this context is we have stability. We have objective truth. We have an incredible opportunity to open our arms to a confused culture more than ever and show them true love and say, come in. We found the very thing everyone's longing for. Love is not love. Love is not God. God is love. And he's shown us true love. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent a son to be the propitiation or the wrath absorber for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So God in Christ has shown us how to love. He's commanded us to love one another. And he's promised that this love for one another will put on display. We belong to him and will bring other people into that very love. One of the texts that shaped King's cross more than any other. John 13, verse 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you're to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, this has massive evangelistic and cultural impact. So how then do we do this practically? Three things, and then we'll close. Number one, if we're to love one another deeply from the heart, we cannot detach truth and love. We cannot detach truth and love. Notice even verse 22. This is the text. If you've having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Truth and love are, it's impossible to detach these two. If we detach from the object of truth of God, we cannot love one another sincerely. It will always end up being hypocritical love. We must have truth and love together. Obedience to gospel truth is what enables and empowers sincere love. Love and truth are married. We must not divorce them or else everyone gets wounded. If you don't obey the gospel, it's impossible to show sincere love. Again, think about truth and love in the Bible. Jesus, John 14, 6. I am the way, the what? The truth. So Jesus says, I am the truth. What do we find out from 1 John? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is what? God is love. So Christ says, I am truth. 1 John tells us God is love. You can't divorce truth and love. You're trying to break up God himself. <laughs> we must have these together. We must have love and truth. And these definitions formed from God himself for he is God. He's revealed truth. Truth. He's revealed love. We must go to him for both. If we ignore his truth, we cannot sincerely love. If we ignore his love, we do not understand truth. The gospel of Christ demands we embrace both. I love what Keller in a book on marriage, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller says, as he, as he pulls these two together. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in, our de in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. 
This commitment to truth and love will keep our love sincere and protect us against hypocrisy. This means we must be willing, brothers and sisters, to encourage, exhort, correct, and even sometimes rebuke one another with a humble love, with the truth of Scripture, not with our opinions. Remembering we are not the standard of holiness. We are not measuring one another up against each other. We're all measuring each other up against the word. And when we see our brother or sister walking out of step with the word, we say, brother or sister, I love you too much to let you keep going that way. I know it's going to lead to your destruction. I know it's going to lead to dishonoring God. I know it's going to mess up your reputation of the church. Please come back in line in conformity with the scriptures because I love you and because I need the same grace. Same grace and I need you to help me when I step out of line. We got to have truth and love together. And we got to be willing to take that truth in love to one another. We got to be willing to have hard conversations. We can't be pansies like, oh, that's cringy. Get over it. Love deeply from the heart. Who cares if it's cringy? Your brother and sister needs you. I need you. I need you to help me walk with Christ. Who cares if it's awkward or hard? We've got to keep truth and love together. We've got to be willing to move to one another and speak the scriptures in humility by the Spirit, helping one another grow. We're all looking into the mirror of the text. And all of us see flaws when we look into the mirror of that text. And we all need help when we're down and struggling. But let us do this with the gentle skill of an eye surgeon. This is Jesus' illustration, not mine. Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' illustration, usually quoted way out of context and abused in all kinds of ways. But notice this is what Christ says, Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Everybody loves verse 1. <laughs> but let's keep reading. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck, the little thing, the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not notice the two-by-four, the log, in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter, that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So notice Jesus' illustration is not judge not lest you be judged in conversation, don't make any judgments. He's like, no. First, no, you need, you need help too. And you got a two before in your eyeball and you slapping everybody upside the head with it. You can't do eye surgery on somebody else to get a splinter out of their eye when you got a two before hitting them in the face. So Jesus is like, no, have the humility that first says, I know I need help. I know I need to grow. Let me take this sin out of my life first so that then I can gently and carefully and with love and humility take that splinter out of your eye. If you know how painful and how difficult it is to take a two by four out of yours, you'll be a lot more gentle with the splinter in theirs. So again, we've got to keep truth and love together. We've got to be willing to have these conversations, but we have to do it with humility. Now, sometimes silence is wise. Sometimes people need to learn lessons the hard way. But sometimes silence is anti-love because you don't feel like having a hard conversation. Let us all repent of that kind of anti-love. Secondly, so let's keep truth and love together. We cannot detach them. Secondly, we must focus on serving rather than being served. Listen, we all have been influenced and impacted and show up on Sunday mornings thinking more like consumers than Christians often. And we evaluate, do I like this song or do I not like this song? Do I like this style or not like this style? Do I like that illustration or not like that illustration? Thinking like consumers, evaluating a product, rather than saying, look, I might not like this song. I like the truth this song sings, and I like the brother or sister enjoying it and loving it. And then I love them singing and enjoying the songs that they don't enjoy naturally because they know I enjoy it. I'm here to serve, not be served. Now, do I get served in that? Of course. Do we end up loving songs we didn't once love? Of course. But we've got to understand if we're going to love deeply from the heart, we've got to show up to serve, not be served. 
We've got to show up saying, how can I love, not how can I be loved? Now, you ought to be loved. You will be loved. If everybody's thinking that, then we're all going to be outdoing one another, showing honor and love anyway. Everybody's going to be loved. You guys know, how can I show up and serve? How can I find joy in my heart, in the joy of the hearts of the brothers and sisters around me? How can that suddenly, can I really believe that Jesus says it's better to give than receive, and I actually live that out when I gather in corporate worship or when I scatter throughout the week in my life? Jesus taught us it's better to give than receive. You'll never find a church good enough if you think church primarily is about you getting your preferences. And I don't say that to be harsh. I say that because I'm jealous for your joy in the church. I want you to understand that sometimes your joy is found in the joy of the person to your left or right. And that you can't find it because you keep looking in the wrong place. I just want you to taste and see that he's good and taste and see how others are tasting and seeing that he's good. And suddenly your joy is going to explode and grow as you enjoy Christ and his church. Currently in evangelical Christianity, I feel like we value platforms too much. Too many people with upfront gifts who lack behind the scenes love. So let us love. Let us say, I don't care if I get platforms. Relationships are more important than roles. I don't need a leadership position to love and serve people. Let me be the kind of person who says, I'm going to love and serve deeply from the heart, no matter what the roles or the platform. Let the Lord determine that. Thirdly and lastly, we must commit to showing up. We got to commit to showing up. Most ministry is the ministry of presence. So when people are going through, be there. When they're celebrating, celebrate with them. When they're suffering, weep with them. When they're out of a job, figure out do they have needs financially. Meet like what? Just be with people. So if we're going to love deeply from the heart, we got to be with people so that we can know them, so that we can be known, so we can know how to love them, so we can understand what we're good at doing, what they need, and how we can line those two up to love and serve them. Show up. If you want to love deeply from the heart, you got to show up. Celebrate each other without envy or jealousy. We're all on the eternal team that wins, and everyone on the team matters. <laughs> and so we celebrate any victory in any brother or sister's life is eternal victory that we all celebrate. Enter in, make yourself known, even your own weaknesses. Help me when you see mine. Let me help you when I see yours. Let us all understand we're on the way to glory and we've got the same spirit conforming us to the image of Christ and we all need help and we all need to love deeply and be loved deeply by his grace. If you particularly have had church hurt, I would just encourage you. So Jonathan Solomon, a worship leader, his album or documentary or combination of the two on YouTube, the ones he gave, I would encourage you to sit and watch it. First half dealing with church hurt. Second half dealing with how the Lord can heal this through the deep love of the saints. So Christ is set apart, given us new birth so we can love one another. The world needs to see this kind of love. Let us love earnestly in obedience to the truth. If you're not a believer, we would just say, please enter this love with us. We'd love to talk to you and help you do that. Let me close in prayer. Father.